I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. is the Virtual Real Estate Investor Podcast with Vincent Polisi. Buckle your your seatbelt and prepare to learn how to legally make six figures investing in real estate with no money, no credit check, and nothing but a computer and internet connection. Learn how you too can begin generating buyers and sellers for free today and why you're only two calls away from making a $10,000 or more payday while never leaving the comfort of your home. And now, your host, the virtual real estate investor, Vincent Polisi. All right, guys, here we go. This is the total disruption episode that has long been promised. It is the episode with the interview from best-selling author and CEO of a half-billion-dollar corporation, Mr. J. Allen Samet. Now, let me give you a little bit of background here. When I first started the podcast, there was never any intention of ever doing what everybody else does, which is typically the guru interview circuit where they all interview each other and then try to pedal and show each other's courses. Didn't want to have anything to do with that. Didn't want any part of that. So I never had any intention of interviewing anybody for this podcast. So the question then becomes, if that's the case, why then did I interview Jay Allen Salmon and why am I so happy and excited to present that interview here to you and introduce you to Jay so that your brain can be expanded to the next level like mine was after reading his book? And the answer to the question is simply this. Believe it or not, Jay actually reached out to me on Facebook and asked if he could come on the podcast. And once you understand who he is and what his credentials are, like I was when that happened, I had to look at it again to make sure I read it correctly. And I was like, did that just happen? I mean, seriously, when a guy like this approaches you publicly and asks if he can come on your podcast, you don't say no. It would be like bumping into Randy Jackson and not getting his autograph. I mean, you're not going to not get Randy Jackson's autograph, right? Do you want to see something super cool that only three people have ever seen in their lifetimes? Okay, open your eyes. Whoa. See that black smudge right there on the blade? Yeah. Look at it closely. Pretty recognizable signature. No. Randy Jackson from American Idol. Why do you have Randy Jackson's autograph on a martial arts weapon? Because I bumped into him and all I had on me was this samurai sword, and you're not going to not get Randy Jackson's autograph, right? I would have done the exact same thing. <sighs> now, do you want to see something really cool? Of course. Turn off the lights. And that is why I interviewed Jay Salmon. That is why I'm so excited after reading his book, and especially after speaking to him, to present this podcast to you. To do a proper introduction on Jay would take the better part of the rest of the day, so I'm going to do a very brief introduction here. I'll have all the rest of the information up on the website, but what I'm about to give you should be more than sufficient to get you jacked up to understand the caliber of the information that you're about to be presented. Jay knows and has worked with the likes of Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn, David Geffen, Bill Clinton, Al Gore, Richard Branson, Paul Allen, Steven Spielberg, and most recently me. Haha. <laughs> he frequently appears on ABC, Bloomberg, CBS, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, NBC, and tweets daily motivation to over 100,000 business professionals who follow him on his Twitter account, at Jay Salmon. He has worked with and provided disruptive solutions for such corporate clients as American Express, AT&T, Best Buy, Clinique, Coca-Cola, Disney, Ford, GE, Intel, LinkedIn, McDonald's, Microsoft, Procter & Gamble, Starbucks, Unilever, Zynga, and dozens more. He also happens to be the CEO of a NASDAQ publicly traded company worth over half a billion dollars, who generated $146 million in revenue last year, a professor at USC in his free time, and most recently, the best-selling author of the book, Disrupt You, which is absolutely fantastic, and I can't recommend enough that you get it. We'll have the information here at the end of the podcast so that you can know exactly where to get it and pick it up. But you cannot afford not to get that book. For me, it was yet another one of those transformational books similar to the four-hour work week was for me back in 2007, but on a completely different level. Now, when Jay approached me, he indicated he wanted to talk about crowdfunding and disrupting real estate. When you hear the stories that he's going to tell about the crowdfunding that he's personally done, the deal that you just recently did for Hard Rock Cafe, and some of the other stories that he's got, you will see exactly why 
disrupting yourself and thinking differently, taking the model apart, finding a better solution is absolutely imperative and how people just like you can do it. And that is one of the most powerful things about Jay's book and his message is the fact that when you take a look at the problems around you every single day, they are not problems. They represent enormous opportunities if you can simply think differently, disrupt yourself, disrupt your thinking, and create a value proposition and win-win for the clients that you serve. So now, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the interview. All right, guys, today we're welcoming Jay Samet to the podcast for the very first interview for the Virtual Real Estate Investor. I could not be happier to have him on. As you heard from the introduction, he is an absolute uh, encyclopedia of business knowledge and expertise, and the list of who's who that he has worked with is just absolutely, absolutely incredible. So, Jay, I want to thank you for coming on today. You had uh, reached out to me on Facebook, and I want to do a quick shout-out to uh, Nicole and Gavin Welch and explain to everybody uh, Kevin Bacon's six degrees of separation as to how you and I even came into contact because I think it's a testimony to the power of social media. Gavin Welch is a fellow real estate investor who just happens to be from the same town. I'm the town I'm from in Ocala, Florida. Did not know him prior to uh, him reaching out to me on Facebook. We interviewed him last year on a webinar. His wife, Nicole, happens to do a podcast that you were a guest on as well. Uh, Gavin and Nicole had been hounding me for the last year or so to put my podcast out. And I did a, an update on our status after less than a month in iTunes and posting a new and, new and noteworthy. And you were kind enough to mention that you'd like to come on to discuss crowdfunding and then disrupting real estate investing. So I cannot wait to hear what you have to say. So to start off, um, what is your take on the whole crowdfunding as it relates to real estate? I haven't really gotten too far into even beginning to understand what it is that they're doing and how they're legally doing it with, uh, without joint venture agreements or syndication or something like that. So maybe you can touch on that. So a couple of years ago, one of the ways that I give back is I teach uh, and lecture on how to build high-tech startups. And two students came up to me with this idea. And make a long story short, uh, they launched a company called Realty Mogul, and they did $150 million in their first year of operation. So uh, it works. The basic concept goes into uh, the following. There's no transparency today, even for the most accomplished real estate person. Donald Trump doesn't know what his cost of equity is going to be on his next project. Okay, He goes to banks to figure this out. And all the banks are is intermediaries that are taking your money and your deposits and making money on it. So take out the middleman. REITs, which many people invest in, are loaded with fees. And the REIT keeps the depreciation, which is the main reason for investing in real estate to begin with. So now you have a legal means where obviously you have to do your own research and vetting, but you are basically owning a fractional ownership. And there are many, many rules that have to be followed. You know, you are selling securities, so you have to worry about FINRA. You have to worry about the SEC. This isn't something that two kids in a garage are going to be able to launch and do. The way that real estate was traditionally syndicated tended to skirt most state laws of what selling a security was. That won't apply when you go on to the net. Those people will really scrub this. So the basic premise is the following. You can say, hey, I have this, uh, this shopping center that I want to buy. It's under contract. Here's the comps. Here's what the cap rate is. Here's the leases. Here's all these third-party diligence things that you can look at. And you, the investor, I'm willing to give you this return or this guarantee or this interest rate or whatever. And you've cut out tons and tons of points and fees that it normally costs the developer to either raise his capital or you, the investor, to invest in something. So it's really taking a $14 trillion industry and applying big data and transparency. So let me ask you this then, because you mentioned the SEC, and I know there was a, uh, they did something last year, and I don't have it right in front of me, where they had released uh, or relaxed the guidelines on what On the you, Jobs Act, yes. So, yes. So, Prior to that, your Kickstarters and your Indiegogos and your other crowdfunding 
were basically crowdfunding for trinkets. So if you, you know, invest in this new luggage that, that's being invented, you get a piece of luggage. If you invest twice as much, you get a signed piece of luggage, three times as much, we'll deliver it to your house and kiss you. But what you don't get is any equity in the company. So when a virtual reality company decided to come up with their, you know, approach on this, they went up crowdfunded. And when Facebook bought that company for billions of dollars, those people that funded it didn't get anything. In the new relaxed rules, and I'm not a lawyer, so don't follow me for, for legal advice, there is a set of bookmarks that the government has said that as long as you're only raising so much money and putting so much at risk, here's what you can do. For the larger crowdfunding and the one that I was involved in, it could only take money from accredited investors. And an accredited investor is a legal definition of how much you have in net assets and how much you make per year. And some of these sites require your CPA, you know, your your accountant to verify that you are in fact uh, an accredited investor. Others will trust you. Um, I'd be doing air quotes if I was there. (laughs) So there's a wide range. So from when the first crowdfunding sites went up, they bloomed like daisies in summer. Uh, Some are ethical, some buyer beware, just like anything. Some are experienced real estate companies saying, we're going to just do this with our own projects. And we have a history, and there's a company that came out of Latin America that expanded into doing stuff in New York that way. And others are platforms that are allowing trusted developers, and then others are, you know, the eBay of life where they're just letting people put up and it's a complete buyer beware. Uh, I, I will recall that I saw one that put the FDIC logo on their homepage, the, the symbol of that your bank account is secured and guaranteed by the government, which has nothing to do with the price of tea in China or any property that they were selling. So again, buyer Not beware. an investing. Yeah, exactly. Not an investing for sure. So let me ask you this then, because the reason I'm asking this, we looked at a, a project last year for uh, bridge or mezzanine funding that didn't fall under the SEC guidelines where we could raise capital, but as long as the term was a specific period of time, we didn't fall under uh, having to classify it as a security and jump through all of those. When these investors that are doing the crowdfunding, you're saying that they're getting equity, so they're actually the, their investment is collateralized with the property, so they're, they're getting invest um, equity and depreciation from a tax standpoint? Yeah, so, it, so again, Different sites do it differently, but the the ones that I would recommend and the ones that seem to be the most uh, fair to the investor is what what you're really doing is setting up a single-purpose legal company that owns a property. So let's pretend that it owns this 100-unit apartment building, okay? So it's not like the old uh, ones where you own apartment 14. You and the other shareholders own a company that just owns that property. So you get your fractional participation in the depreciation, okay? And you have your percentage ownership. The promoter who put the thing up has their ownership, and you can then decide when it sells, at what point it sells, who controls when it sells, and what happens. The fine print to be aware of is the capital call. You you can't have a crowdfunding situation. What happens, let's say it's, Instead of an apartment building, we are going to build a 100-unit apartment building. What happens if you all invested and it turns out that it needs more capital? How? Who gets crushed? Who has the right to come in? What happens? So that's where when you look at some of the ones that are doing it for development, your risk factor increases. Whereas in other cases, it's a steady-state property that may be in a secondary or tertiary market that just can't get the big institutions to care about structuring the deal. So it all comes down to cap rates and inflow and outflow and and good real estate investing. But this is a way for the small investor to be able to say, hey, I have $10,000 of risk capital. There's no guarantees on the stock market and there's no rules of who can play. This allows real estate to start moving towards that direction. But as I said, most of the ones that I've, I've looked into and participated in uh, are for the, the incredi- accredited investor 
who by definition is supposed to be more sophisticated than, you know, which which we know is not true. They just have audited financials typically. I just said was supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, so the the crowdfunders they're buying and I want to make sure I'm understanding you. So they're buying into shares in a company. Is that correct? And the company then is this how they're getting around partnership agreements? Yeah, the company the company is just the company that owns that piece of property. Got it. Okay, so it's similar to a, uh, like a, a tick or tenants in common scenario where they're going to go and they're going to buy. But the difference with a tick is you had to, again, I'm not giving legal advice, but you had to say, you know, unit 14 you own and unit 15 the next guy owns, right? Right. Okay. As, and then it's very tough to unwind and get out of that and, and, and deal with your, you know, exchanges on the back end. The, the, goal, the goal of all this is to move towards liquidity where under my knowledge of the rules, you can't sell your share in one of these things, these crowdfunding things in the first 12 months. But after that point, you could. So imagine a liquid market where somebody can say, hey, I put $10,000 into this apartment building two years ago. It's, it's fully occupied. The neighborhood's gone great. Everything's good. I need the money for my kid's college. You know, the appraisal says the building's worth twice as much. What can I sell my share for? And you actually have a, a place in a transparent marketplace, much like what second market was with pre-IPO shares in Facebook and Twitter and, and LinkedIn. So it's, again, bringing transparency. That's incredible. And I think there's probably a ton of applications for that, not just in the... Oh, uh... let me give you the two seconds. So when we launched it, my phone went off the hook, Okay. So somebody said, why don't you do this for oil and gas wells? There are tons of people that own small pieces of oil and gas wells that have no liquidity, no transparency. Somebody else said, why don't you do this for art? We all go, and here's a Cezanne. You each buy your piece of it. It sits in a vault for five years, goes out to auction, and everybody then makes it. Why not do this for the... uh, equipment that people are opening a franchise. You're going to be open to McDonald's. You need a million dollars worth of stuff. You know, it's already blessed that McDonald's has given the franchise. Here's a way for, to, to secure it with that. Uh, so tons of different things. So what we're basically talking about is modernizing capital markets. Banking has been around, and I talk about and disrupt you, pretty much unchained, unchanged for centuries. And no matter how successful you are, everyone has a limit to who they know and the capital that they can have access to. So why not make capital just another commodity as easy to move as eBay or anything else? Yeah, and the only and the only answer to that is governmental regulation coming in to prevent it by the lobbyists. That's the only or, thing or to yeah. prevent the flimflam artists from policing people. Well, sure. But as you get into blockchain and Bitcoin and digital currency, more and more transactions become borderless, seamless, transparent. And the layers of middlemen that make up so much of the financial uh, backbone of this country, they're not adding any value. They're not creating any jobs. They're not building anything. They are a tax on the entrepreneur. Yeah, it's a it's a arbitrage. Tip, basically, they're just they're they're coming in as the middleman and getting a product at one price and reselling it at another one. And right, so technology has made everything else more efficient. Why wouldn't capital markets benefit the same way? I, I think it's I think it's fantastic, especially if you're not having to deal like you mentioned a franchise. I know the franchise fees. Um, if you wanted to start a franchise, and I'm not not talking about buying into a McDonald's. I'm talking about if you know you wanted to start a franchise with your own product. I mean, we looked into that years ago and it was going to be a half million dollars in legal fees just to be able to sell sell the first, you know, um, but I'll give you, I'll give you, if, you, if you want to extrapolate, and a lot of what I talk about and disrupt you is, is the, the size of the seismic change that is coming. I've had the pleasure of bringing the opening bell on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, that's fun to do, but if you go there, this is not trading places from Eddie Murphy. There's nobody there anymore. As we all know, it's all software. We're doing this for the for the facade and, and, and the cameras to that there's a human doing, but the second you push the button, nothing changed. There was nobody there in the room except reporters. My point of saying this is why is it that the stock market starts at a certain time and stops at a different time? Why aren't all capital markets just twenty four hours a day? They're all completely run by software. That's a, that's a fantastic observation and transparency. So you're going to see greater transparency 
and it's inevitable. And so with the rate of change that we're seeing, you can either say this is a time of, of tremendous change. Oh, my God, I'm going to lose my job, my business, my other, other sources of income. Or you can say, oh, my God, this is the greatest time of opportunity. So it's either, and, and all that an obstacle is is an opportunity in disguise. And if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So this is really the time that you're connected by your phone to 6 billion people. You are one click away from being a billionaire, which is why you have self-made billionaires in their 20s happening monthly, right? Absolutely. So that's the way to look at the market, no matter what slice you're doing. So let me ask you this then. Do you think – and I obviously understand calculations of cap, cap rates and the importance in an investment, but for somebody putting in $10,000 in this type of crowdfund, regardless of the cap rate, if it's cash flowing and they've got an opportunity to get their money back versus going into a paper security on Wall Street, which obviously right now is the absolute worst time in the world. It's at all, they're at all-time highs and have been for quite a period of time. There's not really a whole lot of upside potential in that, in my opinion. Um Especially with, I don't, I'm, not a, well, and, I'm not a fan of paper securities to begin with, but and that's truly it. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's your opinion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm a public CEO of a Nasdaq <laughs> company. Our stock's I, up I thought about that as soon today. as I said it. Um, on the other hand, the point is, every day, some make money and some don't. Some properties go up better than others. It becomes educating yourself and knowledge. No matter what you want to do in in, in this common era is we're living in a time that you're going to have to commit to lifelong education, lifelong learning, because the world's changing. Would you go to a doctor, I'm 54, would you go to a doctor my age that hadn't learned anything since medical school? He wouldn't know any of the drugs of the past 30 years, any of the procedures. Of course, of course not. Of course not, right. So why should anybody invest with a company that doesn't have that? Why would anybody hire an employee to do that? It's really about learning. So really look and educate because you're one click away from the knowledge. What does the Jobs Act allow? What are the rules? What should I be looking for? Who has used this crowdfunding site? Who's complained about it? You know, type in any business in the word scam and you'll find somebody that was annoyed. Um, so, you know, use the tools that are available to make the most educated uh, decisions and obviously diversify. Well, I can see where this would be absolutely huge in, in real estate investing on a number of different levels, even because, you know, there's a ton of, uh, what are called rehabbers or flip, fix and flippers out there that make absolutely fantastic returns on their income, but they're having a, a really hard time with all of the increased layering of guidelines to get the uh, rehab loans that, the, that they need. And these are generally quick turns, three or four months, and they're turning the money over. Yeah, but, so now, so now, if, now you're yeah, modernizing you, the hard money guys. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at what they're doing, though. I mean, you talk about hard money. It's, it's almost like going to a, a loan shark. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what I was what I, what I was thinking with you know all the points they're charging and with the the interest rates and prepayment penalties and things like that. And they they switched all of them or a majority of them switched over to commercial loans so they can circumvent all of the the um, individual lending guidelines and regulations that they have to have for licensing. So it's so a, where crowdfunding of real estate came out of was the same frustration but on a different asset class, one that's a trillion dollars and is is used to be the largest debt class, but. Um, credit card debt. So you have credit card debt. Your only choice was to switch to another credit card. And that's kind of a rigged game when there's only so many large banks that are all basically setting the rates the same. So companies like Prosper and others came up with the idea of, we'll put up your profile, your name. So I'm Jay Samet. I'm a firefighter. I, I've worked at the same fire company for 30 years. Here's what I make. I'm paying 32% of my credit card and I gladly pay you 8%. And you go, wow, that seems like a safe bet. So crowdfunding of personal debt was the first step. And those businesses have done very, very well. So, so, so they're, they're bidding on the debt then, so it's almost like a lending tree. Yeah, well, lending trees one, prosper another. So that's the same concept. And what happened is that's now been hijacked by the algorithms and the big banks that have figured out how to swoop in in mass and buy the, the lowest risk paper at the lowest cost. So, so the original purpose of it being a e level playing field for anybody to go in has been usurped by big data. You know, you know, obviously there's a there's a ton of money sitting on the sidelines right now. Um, there's you know what we call too many dollars chasing too few deals, especially with negative 
uh, interest rates, which is essentially where we're at now. Well, there's never been more capital available across the board for all sectors. Uh, the amount that venture capital has put into the market this year is twice any year in the history of venture capital. And what do you attribute? What do you attribute that to? Uh, there's a lot of cash. Yeah. Uh, there, so we've had a trillion dollars of cash leave China. We've had a ton of money leave Russia and Ukraine. And in the real estate sector, what has happened is for most of the world that doesn't understand tech and startups and risk, you know, generational wealth has traditionally been made from real estate. So all your blue chip properties are being bought up by foreign capital that are not interested in making money. They're interested in preservation of wealth. So if you look at China, China from a communist country, from when you've been allowed to own private property and buy real estate, no one has ever lost a dime because the market just kept on going up and up. And it has reached a point where there are empty cities that they've built in saturation. So people stop repatriating their money back into the country and are buying up U.S. properties, which then drives up you know, prices in the major markets, which then keeps the cash on the sidelines uh, in those markets because most investors want to return. These investors don't. Yeah, they, there was a big article on that. The, the National Association of Realtors put out about all the money coming over from China to purchase residential properties, but you're also seeing it with the theater chains and everything else that they're buying up right now. Yeah, well. So let me ask you this. Then. With the, the negative re- returns uh, or negative interest rates effectively with where they're at right now, um, I can see a huge potential for this with, you know, like you, like you said, um, taking out the hard money guys and creating a pool of uh, easily accessible capital for uh, the rehab guys. Where else do you see this playing out in in real estate? Because it seems to me it's almost like having your own hedge fund. Well, what it's done, so I'll give you a great example of, of what I did to put this on the map. Uh, I guess it's about two years ago now. I, time flies by. I did a crowdfunding of a hard rock hotel in Palm Desert. Palm Springs. So here's a national chain, and here is, you know, a well-known flag hotel. And they looked at it, and we said, how can we do this more than just what you and I have been discussing, another financial transaction that is no different than any other financial transaction? And said, wait a second, what if, as being an owner, i.e., you bought some of this, you have special privileges at the hotel? You get discounts in the restaurant, during Coachella and all the big events. You get VIP to go to the big parties. You get to have access to the owner's cabana. So basically what they did was turn a financing thing into something that made tons of people feel an ownership of the place, because they were, which means that they will then visit it and stay there, which increases the occupancy rates, which makes it more profitable, which makes your investment even better, and you get the perks. So it was a combination of your perk type Indiegogo and a shrewd financial deal. That's genius. What was the what, what there had to be a, a, just a massive cost savings on the commercial loan that they then didn't have to get? Oh, everybody wins. So so the hotel wins to do their their remodel addition, whatever they were using the, the million something for. The consumer gets a better interest rate than they could find and access to a blue chip type of property that normally would only go to financial institutions, not to just a, a mom and pop at $10,000. Uh, and the operating business now has a whole bunch of people that are coming to visit and stay at their property. See, it's amazing. You, you don't think, when you think, when I think of crowdfunding anyway, I'm not thinking, you're always thinking of the startup or the, the people that don't have enough capital trying to do crowdfunding. I was not thinking of, you know, billion-dollar corporations, the you know, a, the A-listers going out there to secure crowdfunding so that they could do additions or renovations or new construction. I mean, that's genius. When people have crowdfunded feature films, they did it to have a built-in audience. When you crowdfund a product, it's to have pre-orders so that people know about the product. It's a new tool of marketing. So the other thing that you'll see that we talked about in Disrupt You is the different segments of how we used to think of business. This is research. This is marketing. Um, this is distribution. Are all blurred in a world that's completely transactional and seamless. Absolutely. It's yeah. It's amazing. You, I mean, you, you're bringing a tremendous amount to the table that I'm guessing that uh, the majority of real estate investors out there 
haven't even thought of because you talk about disruption in in a market. Uh, real estate investing, there's a common terminology. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Nobody, I mean, it's brick and mortar, sticks and bricks. We you know, there's really not been any significant change in how people invest in real estate in what the last fifty years. Oh, I'd say less four hundred. Yeah. Well, there you go. Um, but but let me let me go back to big data and, and tying in because I know you tend to think of of bricks and sticks as opposed to how does big data. One of the smartest billionaires in in in, in real estate investing. Uh, I was having lunch with him, and he said to me, "Women are freezing their eggs." Okay. Mm-hmm. He's not talking about the ones from 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 the grocery yeah, store. Okay. <laughs> what he was saying is. Post-2008, we stopped building residential houses. The recoveries now happened. There should have been a pent-up demand for tons of houses, and there wasn't. Why? Women are freezing their eggs. Women are delaying starting families. People are delaying moving to the suburbs. Right. We have a generation of 2.3 billion millennials around the world that may not be motivated at the same stage of life or ever to own home ownership. What does that change? What does that do? You know, why have we seen, you know, a growth in public storage, but not a growth in housing? So look at the demographics, look at the data and see what are the trends that are changing? What does a self-driving car do to real estate values? What does Amazon do to the value of a strip mall? Okay. And you start seeing that buildings and structures will have different needs and uses in the very short time. And if you can look that way, it changes your complete methodology for picking what is a winner. Most people are looking at what's the historical, what are other things like it in the area doing, and that keeps you on par. That doesn't let you ever pull ahead. That's, yeah, right on point. Uh, I would say the national average length of time in a home prior to 2008 was between three and four years. People, they tend to go into a house thinking they're going to live there for 30 years or for the rest of their life. And the uh, lending actuarials, you know, they price all the loans to churn at 36 months because they know the average one is going to pay out sometime between the 36 and 48 month mark because people are going to move upsize, downsize, sideways, um, you know, transfer jobs, locations, that kind of thing. And since that point in time, they've done a, uh, there's, there's a lot of, factors when you're talking about analyzing some of this. They've continuously, year after year, increased the lending guidelines to make it more and more challenging, even with all the capital that's out there. Uh, so it's, it's a lot more difficult. When we do our surveys of mortgage bankers, mortgage brokers nationwide, when we talk to them, you know, the national average right now, this is this is my opinion based on uh, the just hundreds that I have surveyed. They are, right now, they're declining somewhere between seven and nine out of 10 loan applications for housing. Going back to your point about, you know, all the, where's the pent-up demand? I think the demand is still there to a certain extent. I think the availability of funds uh, is not there to the, and maybe I don't, we don't even talk about the extremes of all the subprime and all that, but it's not there to the point that it was even before the, the big boom was, was going on. And then you've got that compounded by the fact that um, obviously the governmental data, I don't think any of us agree with what the employment, what they say the unemployment rate is, I think you know it's probably closer to 25 percent, um, based on the people we talk to. And so you've got all of that now combined with these millennials who can't—they're they're going into student debt, um, student loan debt. They can't find jobs. The jobs are being shifted overseas, and so they're staying with mom and dad. So it's it's just this sort of compounding effect. And basically, what's happening is, uh, in my opinion, anyway, America is turning into a renter nation. And that's the big play uh, as far as what I see for real estate investing in, in the multifamily, the apartment buildings, um, you know, the, the long-term holds for cash flow as it continues to consolidate down to, and you're going to, I think you're going to see this. I think you're going to see it just like with all the major corporations, the big banks, you know, you've got five, six, eight, 10, 12 different ones that basically control everything. You're going to start to see this thing funnel down with real estate investment companies out there doing the same thing as they own, you know, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of properties that are then being utilized for rentals and cash flow as opposed to the concept of a traditional home ownership. And but but now let me challenge again okay. to, to try to disrupt your thinking, go outside of boxes. Okay. What is a rental and what is a traditional house? Where does Airbnb play into this? 
No, that's a you're, listen. Then you're talking. You're, you're preaching to the choir on that one. Since 2007, I haven't done anything but uh, vacation rentals. I lost everything back in 2007 from um, sheer arrogance because you know I was in, in my 30s making tons of money and didn't listen to my wife uh, and the big disruption for me happened. I'll, I'll never forget this. She asked me, "What would you do if the mortgage business was no longer here?" And my argument at that point in time, again, thinking about that non-disruptive thinking, was that, well, as long as people need houses, there's always going to be a mortgage business because they can't pay cash for them. And boy, was I wrong and never forget what it was like when they turned that lending faucet off because we went from six figures a month to zero overnight and got a real big wake-up call. And since that point in time, when you start, when I analyzed it anyway, and looking at um, – completely altering the model for my own business and lifestyle. I didn't want, you know, we had, I was, we were doing, I don't know, it was $33,000 a month in class A office space and all the employees and all the brick and mortar and all the, you know, utilities and copy machines and all the other stuff that goes along with that. And I said, you know, I've been there. I've done that. I've done the dog and pony show. I don't really want to do all that again. And how, you know, I had to sit there and basically deconstruct and reconstruct real estate investing to the point that I'm able to do it from anywhere that I'm at with nothing other than a computer and an internet connection. People looked at me like I was crazy when they said, well, how are you going to do deals on properties that you're never going to go to with people that you're never going to meet strictly over the internet? And you largely meet most of them on Craigslist, which is known for rampant fraud. And they told me I was nuts. And, you know, I just... I just drove on and that was it. And it's been fantastic ever since, but I haven't, I don't have the desire. And there's a, the Grant Cardone has a, has a fantastic uh, video that he put out on buying apartments. And the fact that, you know, here he is, I know he's doing a hundred some odd million a year in revenue and rents a condo in South beach, about three and a half million dollar condo and tells everybody don't, you don't buy liabilities. You take your cash and invest in assets that pay you cash. And it's a hard argument to, to really overcome when you're looking at the concept of home ownership, which, I mean, you never really own the home anyway, it, the way that people think you do, especially with the property taxes and the ongoing maintenance and expense, and you're listed as a tenant anyway, it's not, not as a homeowner, but um, Airbnb is is beautifully positioned. I mean, people are going to be a lot more transient and, and moving around, and it creates a greater the degree of flexibility similar to the concept of the portable mortgage that they tried to get out years ago. But I think, um, you know, their success is indicative of, of a great many things. They're just perfectly positioned for the. So I'll, I'll tell you a funny story when you talk about disrupting in, in, in real estate. So in the early one or two years after, you know, uh, we did the first internet auction and, and eBay was just catching on. Uh, I was having dinner uh, with a, a billionaire, uh, famous Chinese guy from manufacturing. And he really wanted to try to understand what we're doing on the internet. And this is, you know, 15 years ago uh, uh, or so, almost 20 years ago. And so I explained, you know, that I travel the world and I do stuff all over the place. My kids were little back then. And I would buy buildings for them, you know, like when the, the Empire State Building, the Statue of Liberty, you know, the, the Sears Tower, that type of stuff. And bring them back to, to, to my kid. But now with eBay, I can go on eBay and buy them from anywhere. And so this guy goes to me, goes, oh, we've got a factory in Shanghai we want to get rid of. We should put that on eBay. And I laughed because he didn't understand that my buildings were six inches tall. And now I laughed because he was right. Today, people it's, do sell it's, properties It's that amazing. Way. I'm, I'm telling you, I've got properties I own that uh, they're in states I've never been to that I, I probably never will go to, bought and sold to people I've never met and never will. And it's the, it's the power of the internet. And that goes back to what you mentioned about the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. Why is it not 24-7? Because the internet, I mean, it's a 24-7 global cash register. Right. And money will now move and Bitcoin will now move more seamlessly. And, and, and you're going to see lots of new opportunities, but it's about educating yourself and being aware how quickly the world is changing. The business that you used to do has completely been replaced by software. You know, Quicken Loans processes more than anybody with people with no skill sets just responding to a script on a screen. Those people could be sitting in India. They could be sitting anywhere in the world. Um, They'll be replaced by that you don't need the people, that you can have a Siri-like voice that can answer questions and understand. 
Oh yeah, it's it was a commodity even when when I was in it. It's but, just it's not any different than the but, realtors. But now let me take it thing. to the next level. The most people are missing. The most innovative thing about Uber is not that they have aggregated a million drivers without buying any cars, okay, and that they're the largest taxi company without having any overhead, so to speak, but that there's a million people that applied for a job, got a job, do their job and get paid, and yet have never spoken to or met their supervisor. They report to a piece of software. They work for Skynet. They have no upward mobility. They've met no one else in the company. This will happen to virtually every industry, and people don't realize that. I, I have already actually done that in another business that I've got. I have people that work for me all over the United States that I've never met that do stuff. It's very similar to the you cur- talk courier to them. I do talk to them. That is correct. Yeah, yeah I do. But I'm talking about this has been the first completely automated hiring of a million people with no human interaction. And so no. they, they just they, they fill out a, a form on a website, and then what happens? Um, uh, they get a piece a notice on their smartphone, and if somebody wants to get picked up three blocks from here, they click, they go, boom, they pick up. Fantastic. It's that simple. Money goes into their account. The, much like with, with, with eBay, the uh, passenger rates the quality of the driver, and the driver rates the quality of the passenger. So it's You're not like going to get in the car if somebody yeah. doesn't have a good rating, and they're not going to come pick you up in the middle of the night if you've got a crappy rating. So trust and transparency, big data. So the Internet of Things, big data, mobile, social, all of these are important to figuring out real estate and to figuring out any business decision. So let me ask you this, and this is somebody asked this question uh, on the Facebook post I did today, and I'm going to ask it in two different ways. Uh, if you were starting over today, no money, didn't have your contact base that you've got right now, what would you do, number one? And then number two, for the people that are listening to this, that are, you know, they're, I've got uh, people that are, you know, making um, mid six figures, but that are working what I call slave jobs that, you know, they want out, they want freedom, they want to be entrepreneurs. You know, they're stuck sort of in that comfort zone, and then you've got them all the way down to $35,000 a year, which I don't... It's hard to conceive somebody being able to live on that in the United States these days. But for those people, what would you suggest to them to break free? Um, obviously, education is one. But if you can address those two, I think that would be really valuable. So the only thing that you need to create a billion-dollar company is two very simple things. The big idea and perseverance. Okay? Everything else can be hired. You don't have to know how to write a line of code. You don't have to know any of that. Um, so the real question is, how can you come up with something that is a bulletproof, good business idea, or maybe you have a, what I call a half a idea, something that you kind of think would work, but you don't know how to get there and how to do it. That's the whole genesis of the 300 pages in, in the book, mm-hmm. Disrupt You. Uh, a simple exercise. If I was starting today, first of all, anybody today can make contacts in lightning speed compared to the decades it took me. Why? You can search out and find people that are willing and happy to mentor you on LinkedIn. You can find experts in any field and any knowledge that you can just one-click start a conversation. Don't email them, hey, I got this idea, will you give me money? Ask them for knowledge. Knowledge is what's going to build the difference between your success and failure. You know, putting together that advisory board, putting together, you know, those people that can help you achieve that dream. Uh, I had a reader that, that uh, came to me with an idea that, you know, was so brilliant, I'm connecting him and turning it into a business. I, I wanted to see his business happen because it was such a great idea. Uh, so the best way to start deal flow is, do you have any problems in your life? All that being successful is, is solving problems for others. I okay? Yep, I love that. And so do the simple exercise. Write down three problems that you have today. Uh, today I was stuck in traffic, you know, da, 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 da. But do this every day for a month because as the month goes on, you're going to have to look at things that you didn't look at as problems. You looked at them, that's the way the world is. The world doesn't change. I'll give you another example. Oh, I forgot to take my medicine at lunch. That's a problem. So now at the end of the month, you have 90 ideas and which ones affect the most people. And now let me give you two follow-ups. The genius of two guys were stuck in traffic in Tel Aviv realized that the phone company knew where their phone was because they could get a phone call. So if the phone could tell one car to go left and the other go right, they could cut traffic in half. That was ways turned into billion dollars business without ever 
selling a single copy or raising a dime. Okay. The pill one, a guy just took one of these cheap happy meal watches, put it on the lid of a pill bottle, got a patent that every time you close the lid, it starts the countdown clock. Did I remember to take my pill at lunch? Oh, it's been four hours since I've opened the jar. No, I didn't. The efficacy of using drugs will save billions of dollars to taxpayers, insurance companies, and all of us, and have people live happier, healthier lives. So not only is he becoming a multimillionaire off of that very simple concept, but there's now legislation moving through Congress to mandate these bottles because people will end up using less of of the medical system if they get healthy faster. Wow. And the difference between his product and today's is six cents. Wow. That is so if you don't have any problems in your life, congratulations, you're not going to be successful. Okay. All right. I'm going to be a multi-billionaire then apparently, but you know, so Airbnb, do you know where that started? I do not. Couldn't pay their rent. They weren't even making your 35,000, but they lived in San Francisco. They couldn't make their rent, but they knew there was a big convention coming in town. Hotels were full. So they got some air mattresses and said, we'll rent you a mattress to sleep in our place tonight. It's cheaper than that. And there's a new generation that is willing to do that. And lo and behold, fast forward, huge. Now, when Reed Hoffman, who created PayPal and LinkedIn and was chairman of Zynga and is the brightest man I've met on the entire planet and was gracious enough to write the intro to Disrupt You, when he first told me about Airbnb, I go, I'd never do that. Worst answer you can do. The world isn't about you. The world is about demographics. Yeah, never sell to your own ideals, for sure. So, so. Next time Reed says anything, I, I just put a sock in his mouth, say, here's the check, now tell me. <laughs> wow, I'll tell you, that's uh, that's that's quite the testimonial. He's the most intelligent guy you've ever met when you've worked with Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah, and, and Reed's a nice human being, so uh, I'll let you I'll let you infer <laughs> the, the rest. Um <sighs> Yeah, very yeah, excellent. So yeah, no the 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 vacation rental market obviously is absolutely on fire, and and just from a different perspective, what it's enabled me to do personally for those of the listeners that don't understand it is it enables me to travel all over the United States with with my kids who we homeschool and do business from anywhere and enjoy all of the exotic locations. But able I'm able to do it at a discount of what the actual cost would be over and above. Um, owning a house or actually renting a house on a, on a conventional lease because I'm able to be in locations when other people cannot. So as an example, um, like last year, we were in a um, 6,000-square-foot house in a place called True North in Scottsdale that absolutely, you know, multimillion-dollar house, absolutely fantastic. But I didn't even pay, pay half of the cost, or wouldn't have, wouldn't even a third of the cost of the mortgage uh, for the months that we were there and had all the utilities included, you know, flat screen TVs. I mean, just the entire, the works. We had a, got photographs of it up on the, um, on the website. I mean, it was like living in a resort. And we've been able to do that time and time again uh, because basically what you're doing is you're taking the expense off of somebody at that point when they otherwise would have no money and no capital coming in and nobody in the property and they'd have to be sending people out to do management and make sure the house wasn't burglarized and all that. So but the one, absolutely. The uh, one catch. Is innovation and disruption always are miles ahead of the legal system? So just as Uber is fighting to figure out where it's legal and where it's not, just as Tesla is fighting because they're not going through the dealership network and you're required by most state laws to set up a dealership, many cities and states are behind in their interpretation of how to do this. So again, understand the laws and the laws that are in flux and, you know, Usually things sort out in the right direction. In a little bit of time that we have left, why don't we do rapid fire some of the more questions that people were nice enough to have? Yeah, um, absolutely. I appreciate you. I actually had just picked them up to start on that. So, all right, you starting over today, nothing, not, no contact base. We kind of touched on that. What industry? Uh, yeah, I, what I, would, industry? I would go on, on to LinkedIn and start trying to figure out of areas that I want to solve for. Who can I, who can I get wisdom from? And literally... You know, on another day, I could tell you a long story, but in the early day of an eBay convention, my kid was in eighth grade. I let him walk around the day by himself. And by the end of the day, he'd asked all the most successful people on eBay what they did. And he launched his own little business, making $1,000 a week while he was in junior high school because he understood and learned what drop shipping was. Never had to touch the product, never had to do anything. So knowledge is, is, is the key. Plug into knowledge. 
the best investment you can make is between your ears. I could not agree more. Absolutely. That's, I teach my kids all the time. Leaders are learners and leaders are readers. So I'm absolutely with you on that. Okay, so we have from Christy. She wants to know, is there a tip that the big boys know that the small investor could use to grow their business? Yeah, there's a ton of them. That's why they're the big boys. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I, uh, yep, that, that's that, the, I, I start there. You Le, know? Le, Lee Iacocca approach for sure. And I will tell you that the first question I ask on every investment opportunity that comes to me, why me? And if I can't answer why I'm the best person in the world, to have this amazing opportunity, I pass. Perfect. All right. Advisory boards for startups. Yes, absolutely. It shows that people believe in you and shows that you're open to input. Every major business that you can think of in the startup world pivoted, okay? Pivot after pivot after pivot. You're investing in the people, right? So are these people that are open to dealing with failure? Are these people that are going to stick it out, you know, et cetera, et cetera? Got it. How do you attract those people? Because I know guys like you know Tim Ferriss and some of these. I mean, they're they're into just twenty seven different startups all the time. How do you um, how do you get their attention? It's having a big idea. Big ideas attract big minds and doers. When I was selling my first software company, this was in the nineties. The internet had just become the web, and I really believed that if we had an internet outlet and a computer in every classroom, we could have equal access to education. No more Brown versus education and separate, you know, quality. But everybody had the opportunity. Somebody might want to watch a cat on the piano, but somebody else could cure cancer. So I started talking about that idea. I was a small guy with, you know, less than 20 employees. Nobody had ever heard of me. I got a call one day from Bill Clinton. Come to the White House. We like what you're saying. Go do it. One catch. There's not a dollar of federal money to do it. But the most powerful man in the world and the vice president asked me to do it. 18 months later, every classroom was wired in the U.S., without $1 taxpayer money. Now, you talk about attracting big ideas, get big people. My thank you from the White House was an autographed picture that came after a press day that we did pulling Cat5 wire in a school. And it was autographed and it's, it wasn't a two shot, it was a three shot with this other guy in the photo. So I'm like heartbroken, here's my one thank you. And who's this guy? He was a volunteer who was out of work, but he wanted to work on the thing. <laughs> Hung on my wall ever since, you're getting to the punchline. and. About five years ago, somebody goes, oh, you're friends with Eric Schmidt, um, chairman of Google. Yeah, so, I know. So, yeah, I, I saw the photo. So the whole point is whatever your big idea is, you will attract big minds. When I think of some of the people that I've worked with, they weren't household names when we were all sitting there like goofballs with a crazy idea. Okay, given what you just mentioned about your son and the thousand uh, dollar week eBay business, which uh, is probably about the median income for a majority of the United States, is he going to college? I mean, may may already have. Is he going to college? Did he go to college? If so, why? If not, why he, not? He went to. I'll brag. I love my sons. He went to Princeton. He got his. He went overseas to uh, get fluent in Chinese and Japanese, and he got his MBA at Harvard. He's now an executive uh, for uh, Fox. Um, yeah, and there is a great value to learning. Should everybody be going into debt? I mean, we have a generation coming out that all have a mortgage but don't have a house. No. So it's really, you know, make sure that what you're paying for is what you're worth. I would be hard-pressed to find a situation or an economy where somebody with a Harvard MBA and a Princeton undergrad can't get a job. Okay, and then there it is. That's the, there's the answer. I'm, I'm I'm shocked on the one hand, and and not not shocked on the, on the other hand. Given your entrepreneurial background, now the flip side, I will tell you, yeah. I teach a college course on how to get a uh, build a high tech startup, and I get I've gotten in trouble twice. Once it's standing room only at, at USC. The place is packed. It's a great class, great energy. But the administration said, you know, all those people aren't students. Word got out about your class. And uh, I'm like, that isn't my problem. You guys pay me $8 to, to teach a class, and it cost me $10 to park. Somebody wants knowledge. I'm there to give back, okay? If you want to charge them $6,000 of credit, that's your business model to enforce it. The second place I get in is if a student has a great idea and they come to me, should I drop out and pursue this? And I go and raise them their money. 
you know, it doesn't work good for the university's graduation rate. (laughs) (laughs) Conflict of interest, huh? Gotta be careful. Never. Students' interest is what I always put first. Perfect. Okay. All right. So continuing on then, uh, what are the main factors that you look for when you're looking to invest in a startup business? Obviously, big idea. We covered that. Beyond that, what do you... But the team. It all comes down to the team. So the team is so important. I'll give you, you know, know, two seconds. When broadband came out, three guys sat down and said, oh my God, we're going to kill it in in dating. Every dating site is just a still picture. We're going to put up videos. You can hear the voice. You can see what they sound like, the personality. They rushed out. They spent their money. They built the site, and it landed like a turd. Nobody wanted to date these losers. But then they looked at the data, and the data said, Nobody's dating these people, but everybody's sending to look at these videos because they want to, whatever, laugh at these people. So they changed TuneIn Hookup, and they renamed it YouTube. So the point is you want to look for somebody that is willing to admit when they're wrong, willing to change, willing to learn. It's all about knowing the difference between failing and failure. You've got to, failing yeah. is learning what doesn't work. Failure is throwing in the towel. You've got a lot of those great examples in the book that should really be eye-openers to a lot of people to think a little bit differently. So the um, and you, maybe you touched on this, and this may be the part of the, the um, introduction to the book. But the the greatest challenge that you've experienced was that the dyslexia, and what you had to endure. Well, I I look at it as the greatest gift I've ever been given, and so you already read and know that. But yeah, you know when you're told you're stupid at four, right? <laughs> when, yeah. you know, when the world's already hell, hell, at forty four, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, when it's already <laughs> written you off. You know, uh, God bless that I came from you know loving parents. Uh, and I, you know, they believed that there was something in me and, you know, eventually I figured it out. Uh, greatest obstacle is my back's filled with tons of scars. I'm not the guy writing a book saying, look at me, I'm flawless. I'm a genius. I'm saying I'm an average guy. I lose more than I win, but I go to bat so often that I look like I'm, um, Babe Ruth. Exactly. So it's really about having that attitude. Um, before I get to your last question, two, two quick comments. One, Anybody in business needs daily motivation. It's like a shower. Motivation only lasts so long. So if you follow me on Twitter, at Jay Samet, I think you'll enjoy my Twitter feed. I think you already do. And to anybody that enjoyed today and is looking at, at getting the book, I have a companion workbook, a 40-page workbook for you to do exercises and get the most out of Disrupt You. And I will send that to any of your listeners for free, my gift for them being generous with their time and sitting through this interview. So just go to jsamet.com, ask for the workbook, and we will email it to you. Now, that's absolutely uh, very, very generous of you. And I can't thank you enough because I know for a fact in speaking to many of them, they need it. I think we We all all need need help. Yeah. I I I wish I had had a jsamet to go to when I was starting out. So last question, make it a doozy. Why'd you do this interview? Ah, well, you asked, I'll give you my soapbox. I'm really worried about life as we know it. When I look at the Greek economy, when I look at, at, at Spain, when I look at ISIS, when I look in our country, Ferguson and Baltimore, this isn't race, this isn't religion, this isn't culture, this is massive unemployment for those under 30. We have 2.3 billion people that there will not be jobs for. One generation that is larger than the entire planet when my parents were born. Unless we teach people a different way of thinking, how to be entrepreneurial, how not to go through an educational system to be a factory worker when there are no more factories. Life as we know for a middle class is doomed. The middle class has evaporated, not just in this country, but globally. And I don't want to live in a world where the rich people are behind barbed wire with guns and everybody else isn't. Uh, I like a world where Everybody can reach the potential because at the end of the day, if you believe the premise that everyone in business, every entrepreneur is really just solving problems, then somebody out there is solving a problem for me. I want as many people making my life easy as possible. I love the idea that somebody reduced traffic. I love the idea that somebody came up with, with, with self-driving cars. So now you can go and, and, and sleep and eat and watch movies and have the doors just open and say, welcome to Yellowstone. Domestic travel will completely overtake international travel over the next 10 years. So that's why I'm trying to help start a movement. And I need everybody's help to get the word out because 42% of college graduates never read another book. This isn't about making money. There's no money in books. This is about how could I scale what I've learned? How can I pay it forward? How can I make the journey easier for the next person that takes the first step? That's why. 
And there you hit the nail on the head. It's taking that first step. And there's a great quote I love on that. Take the first step in faith. Yep. And the staircase will appear. And I think the biggest challenge that most people have is not taking that first step out of fear, out of social conditioning, social engineering, uh, quote unquote education, if you want to call it that. And that becomes a really big problem because what you teach is largely not taught in just the standard public education system. And, and can I tell you how, how I get paid? Like, not a day doesn't you. go by that somebody yeah. doesn't send me an email, send me an Instagram, show me a picture of the book from Tangiers. From, I've heard from over 100 countries that something in it, whether I deserve it or not, gave them the idea that day to push through a wall that they hit, to turn their business around, to make something happen. And these are people I will never get to meet. But it overwhelms me with joy and pride that I'm able to take something that I've learned in my half a century and make the world better. Be the change that you want to see in the world. And I think you're a shining example of that for sure. Thank you, my friend. Have a great day. And thank you for this opportunity. I can't thank you enough for the time, Jay. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Virtual Real Estate Investor Podcast with Vincent Polisi. If you found any value in this podcast, please use our Give to Get method and take a moment to give us a five-star rating in iTunes and your favorite podcast service so we can keep giving you excellent episodes of real content you can use to profit today. 